This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I'll get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend, Sean Lake, co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals, and the courage of Glenn Doherty. Listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot and they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May and again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. 
This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show veteran law enforcement officer and the founder of A Chance for Awareness, Heidi Chance. So we discuss a host of topics from her journey into the police cadet program transitioning into full-time law enforcement, the role of the school resource officer, her extensive undercover work in the world of prostitution and sex trafficking, warning signs for parents, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Heidi Chance. Enjoy. Heidi, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time, reaching out, and then taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. You're very welcome. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this fine morning? I am in, well, I'm in the Phoenix area in Arizona. Beautiful. 
Well, I know that's where, um, unlike many people, that you were actually born and bred in the place that you still are and the place that you served. So you don't have to be specific of the town, but tell me roughly where you were born and tell me a little about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, so I am a Phoenician is what they call it. <laughs> that means you're from Phoenix, uh, born and raised. Most people are not. They come from other states, um, probably because the weather um, we have really nice weather, except for it does get really hot um, about three months out of the year. But this is a state where you can travel two hours, see the snow, say hi to it and leave and come back home where it's warm. Um, and so it's it's a really nice state to live in. Um, I grew up with um, both my parents. Uh, my dad was a police officer. My mom was a nurse. And um, I have a brother and then I have an adopted sister and we grew up in Phoenix. So we had a great time here. That's why I stayed. Now, I understand law enforcement goes further back than your father's generation. So tell me about the, the first person serving and where they served. Yeah. So my father's father, so my grandfather was NYPD. And so he served as a police officer in the garment district, I understand it, where it was kind of like a walking beat. Uh, for most of his career, and it was in a district where they made a bunch of clothes. Um, I do know that there's an interesting story from my grandfather and myself. We both had an instance where a guy, a, a suspect got in our car without us having to arrest them. <laughs> <laughs> really? Tell me more. Yeah. So I guess my my grandfather was in a foot pursuit with this guy who was a suspect in stealing something. And um, you know how there's a whole bunch of taxis hanging out around buildings in New York. And for whatever reason, this guy mistaked his patrol car after he thought that he ran from him a couple of blocks um, and he got into the patrol car himself and, and you know, turned around and was like, oh, no, it's the police. Um, for me, I had a, a student. I was a school resource officer at the time. I had gotten a foot pursuit with him. I was looking for him for about 20 minutes. I got on the, you know, the microphone of the patrol car and i'm saying we can do this all day long and then i see him on the you know main street walking i pulled up on him i said are you going to run again or are you going to get in the car and he got in the car <laughs> <laughs> i didn't even have to handcuff him or anything so um yeah that's it's pretty funny so with this third generation law enforcement experience that you have what are some of the interesting takeaways when you when you look back at the two generations prior to you? Are, are there things that um, have been incredible as far as progress? And then conversely, are there some areas where you've almost regressed in those professions? Um, well, definitely, um, you know, every cop does this, but we see the other generation of cops as not as good as this generation. So I'm sure I was a disappointment in times to my dad. And I'm sure my dad was a disappointment to his dad as far as the way we do business. But definitely, um, you know, things were better. Things, you know, were better back when. And things are definitely different now. We don't have a lot of friends. Um, there's a lot of, you know, distrust for law enforcement, a lot of, you know, misconceptions about law enforcement, a lot of bulking us all into a, a group um, that mimics, you know, a few bad apples. And it's it's really unfair because that's not what the whole um, law enforcement demographic is all about, um, represented by a few bad apples. So it's, you know, challenging. It's um, my supervisor used to call it, you know, it comes in waves. 
sometimes we have, you know, high community support and then we have low lows where we have no community support. So it's really, um, you know, part of what we need to be doing is, is, you know, community support. Now, what about the ripple effect of the job? There are obviously, you know, um, detrimental health elements to our professions as, as a mental health component as well. Did you ever retroactively see any of those in your father or grandfather? Um, you know, we all eat bad. <laughs> That's just one thing that happens when you're going from call to call and you're eating in your patrol car and you're trying not to touch the steering wheel after you've had a French fry. Um, <laughs> because you don't know what contents of suspects biohazard material are on the steering wheel. Um, or, you know, buying food at a restaurant where you don't know if they spit in your stuff or not. But definitely, um, you know, it's, it's really, there isn't like a lot of people have the luxury of a routine where unfortunately there'll be times when you come into briefing and have to go immediately out to a scene when you don't even have time to brief. Um, you don't have that 30 minutes um, at the beginning of your shift and you're just go, go, go the whole time. There's times where you do a 10 hour shift and you don't have time to stop to go to the bathroom. Um, so it's very, very unhealthy. I don't think the general public realizes what cops go through. Um, and then every day is different. So there's no routine to, you know, being able to eat at a normal din dinner time, like five or six o'clock. Um, you know, my dinner time was like 10 o'clock at night after my whole shift was over and then trying to go to sleep right after that. So it's, it's definitely, I mean, it, it takes a toll on you for sure. Patrol takes a toll. And what about when your dad transitioned out? Did he, because a lot of us, you know, we get off shift and then we're in our own bed and with our family a lot more. You kind of realize, oh, I was way far from what actually my baseline should be as a human being. Did he, did he, was he able to kind of uh, grow and heal from all those years in uniform once he retired? Not really, because, <laughs> and I, we're, we're, we're cut from the same cloth. Um, we're both, doing well he had done you know 26 years with phoenix police department and then he went on to maricopa county sheriff's office and became a, a deputy and so he had his second pension and i'm doing the same i retired from phoenix police department after 23 years and i'm working on my second pension with a different agency and it's definitely one of those things where um unfortunately we're, you know, good at planning and we're good at, you know, wanting to reach that end time, that, that retirement date, but we want to be able to reach it where we don't have to continue working and we have to keep working uh, to make that happen. Um, sometimes two, two different um, jobs, two pensions. Now, what about the identity piece? I mean, we're going you know, deep right off the bat, but um, I think a lot of people also struggle when we transition out of the uniform because it's become identity for a long, long time. Is there an element of that you think that keeps you in that law enforcement world? Yeah, yeah, definitely. When I retired and I moved on to another agency, it's not my, you know, dream job. It's not, you know, my dream. I was doing my dream job. I just had to leave. Um but it's one of those things where I'm not ready to not be a cop anymore. So even if I were to leave my current agency, I would go to another agency where I was still in law enforcement. Definitely. All right. Well, then let's get back to the kind of timeline then. So when you were kind of school age, obviously you entered a profession where you need a high level of physical fitness. What were you doing athletics and sports wise? Not a thing. <laughs> 
No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, I definitely never did sports. Um, I was in student government in high school, um, but not sports. I, um, I, I definitely, when I was going through, uh, getting prepared for wanting to be in law enforcement, I started running of course, cause that's when, you know, that's one of the main parts of the test. Um, but no, nothing, nothing too crazy. I, I think I've been naturally fit my whole life. Um, now I continue to obviously stay in shape. And what about career aspirations? Were you always dreaming of law enforcement or was there something prior to that? Um, so the funny thing is, is in, in high school when I was learning how to drive, things started happening. And I've always said that my dad and I are in the right place at the wrong time. Um, so there were two instances when I was just barely trying to learn how to drive where I, um, you know, my, I was working at a yogurt shop. My dad, um, would, you know, come get me and then I could get to drive home and we roll past a shoe store and there was a robbery, an armed robbery and two suspects ran out in front of us with a bunch of shoes and guns and got in the car that was in, stopped in front of us. And, you know, you know, without a second thought. We're following the car um, and my dad's getting on the phone and then the vehicle takes off and actually makes its way, hitting a bunch of cars to blow the red light. Um, but it's one of those things where those kind of things kept happening right in front of us. Um, a second time, also while I was still learning how to drive, um, I was driving us home. He always taught me how to look down alleys and um, we were looking down our own alley and we saw two guys jumping over our neighbor's fence. And so I pull up in front of the house. He's thinking I'm going to stay there. He goes inside to get his radio and his gun and whatever. And I pull around the block to block them off at the end of the alley. And then they come walking up and he's coming from the other end. So we kind of enclose them in. But it's one of those things where it was without a thought. Um, I knew I was going to be my dad's backup. So um, it was, you know, I think ingrained in me without a second thought. So I know that you entered a cadet program. So talk to me about what what it would have looked like prior to that had you wanted to go in law enforcement and what did that program bring to your own career journey? Yeah, so I was in high school and I was thinking I needed to go in the military because I needed to be 21 to be a police officer and I knew I wanted to do that. And so I switched high schools to go into the junior ROTC program to go in the Air Force because I figured, you know, by then I'll be 21, I'll have a couple of years in the military under my belt, and then I can go into law enforcement. And in May of 1996, I graduated and learned about the hiring process for a cadet program with the police department. Basically, it was a brand new program. Um, they only hired five of us. They've never had a female. So I was the first female and I'm badge number two. Um, anyway, I went through the hiring process and by September I got hired. So right out of high school, forgot all about the military, did what I really wanted to be doing and went to work for the Phoenix police department. Um, the cadets were basically responsible for non-emergency calls like accidents, dusting for fingerprints at a burglary, recovering stolen vehicles, directing traffic, those kind of calls. But they had me in a light blue shirt no gun, just a baton and pepper spray and a fully marked patrol car by myself in South Phoenix. So 
um, you know, part of that, no second thought <laughs> also remained with me. And I, um, you know, did what I had to do and, and it, you know, turned out well, I, I survived my years leading up to getting to be 21. So I turned 21 in the academy. Now, has that element changed since? Are they a, a, a little bit more deliberate, whether it's more people together or maybe a different type of vehicle so they know that you're not police, please? Yeah, so I think they have um, they have more of them now and they're in a, in a like a patrol car truck. So it's differentiated between the actual patrol cars because there were definitely times where I'd be flagged down on hot calls because they think, oh, cop car, there's a cop when you need one. And it wasn't, it was me. So, <laughs> and I wasn't yet, I was only 19, 20 years old. So. Now, while we're on the cadet conversation for a second, when we talk about diversity in the first responder professions, I would like to think that the solution to that kind of polarized conversation is mentorship. And a perfect example in my city here, one of my friends, Chris Hickman, started a mentorship program for the fire service. So anyone who wants to be a firefighter from all walks of life, zero barrier to entry, as long as you can physically be at this fire station, which is in the center of town as well, um, they will give you the equipment, the training, there's scholarships for fire school, there's certainly jobs outside fire school. Um, so you're going into these communities you're finding the best people that are, you know, male, female, black, white, Hispanic, whatever that, you know, is is underserved in a department. And rather than just checking boxes from skin color or sex, you know, um, sex or sexual preference, you are finding the best candidates from those pools. What is your perspective on the cadet program and, and what that did as far as bringing other uh, candidates that maybe didn't have the opportunity to enter the traditional way? Um, I think what basically the cadet program is, is they were having a hard time, they still do, finding young people that haven't experimented with drugs and thinking that if we can give them, you know, an influence or, or the mentorship early on, earlier in their lives, then they won't, you know, you know, experiment and, and you know, go the wrong path. And so that's that was definitely the part of you know, recruiting young people in high school to do the cadet program. Um, and certainly if it's a certain demographic, um, they would recruit there. But yeah, it, it was, you know, important. You know, I never had that issue. My dad was a cop. I wouldn't dare, but <laughs> yeah. I had this conversation recently with a, with a few people, and I think this is the one of the, the areas I think we could almost take a step back and and reevaluate our prejudice prejudices a little bit there's probably some incredible potential police officers firefighters paramedics that are immediately disqualified because of these hard and fast you you can't have done anything bad in your life prior to this philosophy that we have there are some crimes you know real crimes that if committed absolutely should be disqualified from the process but i think there's some areas speeding tickets and i tried i tried substance x a while ago where you know is is this realistic? Are we eliminating people who would actually be good police officers because they grew up in these areas and, and we're wiping the, you know, we're removing them from the application process. And in my opinion, maybe there's a kind of element of fantasy that every police officer and every fa uh, firefighter is this choir boy or girl who's done nothing wrong, you know, their entire life. 
Yeah, no, it's definitely probably the focus should be more on mental health and, you know, the psychological exam rather than so much of, you know, definitely a a hard line on certain things. But, um, you know, there's there's I'm sure lots of potential really good people out there that didn't make it because of stupid reasons that um, maybe they should reevaluate that process. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I, to- I heard you talking on the uh, Quiet Professional podcast about school resource officer. Was that one of your earlier roles that you had? Yeah. So after the cadet program, I went into the academy and um, our academy was, I believe, 16 weeks long. And I already had done, there was a six week academy for the cadet program. And then um, after that, I did three years in patrol and I got pregnant with my son and I knew I wanted to, you know, spend time with him on a normal schedule because I was on swings with weekdays off and, um, you know, first kid. So I, I made changes and I tested for the school resource officer position and I went there and I spent six years there, but it went by like that. I mean, it was, um, you know, it was fast, I guess, when, when you're having fun. Um, but it was, you know, really good to, you know, be around teenagers, young people, um, kind of have a good influence on them. And what was the the kind of philosophy back then? I've had a lot of conversations, obviously, sadly, you know, the more violence we find in our schools, the more these conversations happen. But I've witnessed the absolute worst case scenario where a horrendous member of law enforcement has been in my son's school. A, I know would certainly not be running towards gunfire if it happened. And B, was creating this revolving door of sending middle school children into Baker Axe, you know, 72 hour holds because they had some sort of emotional event and they just was like, all right, well, the easiest way is just send them to the, the psych facility, totally abandoning all uh, protocols that were well written. Conversely, I've spoken to chiefs who have an incredible program that seeks out some of their finest officers, not only tactically, but to be that mentor in the school and that role model that hopefully would inspire children to go that route or at least a good route. So what was what was the selection process like back then? And then have you seen an evolution of that type of person in our schools? Um, I think that back when was Columbine? I think I was a school resource officer just barely after or before Columbine. So they didn't really have any idea that the magnitude of school shootings were going to happen yet. So there wasn't, there wasn't, um, you know, too much consideration and background as far as tactical. Um, you know, my, my information from tactics came from the academy and my experience at patrol. But if they do now have, tactical backgrounds, I think that's really wise. Um, uh, I definitely had instances with, um, you know, my school was in between a park and a high school. I'm sorry, there was a park in between. And so I had a lot of trespassing from the high school students coming on campus, um, trying to fight with middle school kids. (laughs) And then I had, you know, other instances. I had one boy who was a student, um, had had should have been a freshman but was held back stole a car and was trying to take off with a girl and you know different things i definitely had experiences i had a girl standing on the playground with a knife at her stomach um you know i don't know if she was waiting for me when i pulled around to go park my car but i noticed her and these boys were taunting her and 
they're all on the other side of the chain link fence for me. So I had to, you know, talk her out of turning around and attacking them with the knife and giving me the knife. Um, you know, so a lot of crazy things happen at the schools. And I don't think half of what happens at the schools gets out to anyone. So they know what's going on there, but, um, definitely, uh, if, if, there's more part of the process. I think that's definitely needed. So I had a few people from the Deliver Fund organization on the show, Caro Smith and Nick McKinley. And when I was talking to them, I had a I'm pretty a, a bad flashback as far as, oh my goodness, when I think of certain calls in my past, that was absolutely a trafficked female, you know, et cetera, et cetera. With the experience that you gathered later in life, were there any times in your SRO experience that you look back now and, and realize, oh, okay, there were some some red flags and I completely missed them because of the lack of my education at that point? Yeah. So my story with getting involved with sex trafficking comes from one of my former students at that middle school. Um, I had gone to patrol, return the patrol car at the police station, just like I did every day. And I came past in the hallway, the juvenile holding area. And I happened to see a student I recognized when she was in seventh and eighth grade, but she's about 16, 17 at the time that day. And she recognized me and I was like, why are you in trouble? And so, you know, she was talking with me and, and, you know, she barely disclosed what was going on with her, but indicated that she had been uh, in trouble because she was out prostituting. And this is, you know, back in like 2006, 2007. And so I had already been a police officer for several years and I didn't even put two and two together that the prostitution element was affecting younger kids or kids at all. And so that's definitely what got me interested in wanting to pursue sex trafficking wanting to go see what, you know, what is this? How are young kids falling into this situation? And so that's when I started working with um, the unit that focused on sex trafficking. Now that unit at the time was barely getting into targeting anyone else but prostitutes. Um, That's what they were doing back then. Um, And so we were targeting prostitutes. Uh, Right when I started shadowing with them, that's when we started doing more towards targeting sex buyers. And so that's where I played a, a integral role of posing as a prostitute myself to target buyers. Um, and then that it morphed into targeting uh, traffickers. Um, but definitely it was an evolution itself in the problem and the way the, the agency handled it and all law enforcement, I think, was handling it, uh, moving from focus on the prostitutes to focus on the demand for the problem, which was sex buyers. So I'd love to just kind of unpack that for a second. I've in this evolution of this podcast and and my family moved to Portugal. um, So I've got this very, very different perspective now than 10 years ago on addiction and drugs and the war on drugs. And I would argue that, you know, personally, my opinion is the war on drugs has been an epic failure As, as a firefighter and a paramedic. The number of children that I've pulled the yellow sheet over whether it's an overdose, whether it's a gang killing, whatever it is, all come back to drugs, which ultimately is a mental health conversation. When I think of Cops, the TV show in the 90s, you know, there's this massive police chase and foot pursuit and it ends up they've got a baggie of, you know, whatever, personal use of whatever. Also, a big part of that show was the prostitution stings, arresting, you know, the prostitutes, arresting the Johns. What 
you know, what do those operations look back like back then? And then talk to me about the effectiveness of this, you know, decades old system that you're using prior to ta uh, targeting the sex traffickers specifically. Yeah. So um, the whole process of focusing on the prostitutes and arresting them has caused this obvious distrust for law enforcement. Um, it is exactly what their trafficker tells them. The police are just going to arrest you. And that's what we are doing. And so <laughs> it is what it is. Um, and it's, it's an uphill battle trying to explain, you know, what was going on then and what we're doing now. And, you know, even to victims, getting them to understand that that's not the way we tr do business now. I mean, every now and again, yes. Um, there is a point where, you know, I have saved someone. I have helped them legally change their name. I have they gotten them in a transition, you know, where they were going to get an apartment. They had a full ride scholarship to a college, and then they chose to go back to prostitution. At that point, I've got to make, you know, an arrest if they go back to it. And and unfortunately, I have had to rearrest uh, or arrest someone that um, I helped. But it is definitely where we are making strides to ask the question we never asked before, which is, what can we do to help you get out of this? Never asked that question before. And then further of that, we have a victim advocate that goes out with us when we are contacting individuals out on the street. And that person can take them aside, offer immediate services. Uh, they have bus tickets available. They've got, you know, funds to fly someone away to home. They've got, you know, the back number to shelters to find out directly if there's a bed available right now, all of those things that we didn't have before. And so that is huge in, you know, helping and actually helping get people out of the life um, and, and actually re rescuing someone. Um, as far as sex buyers, definitely there's more work to do there. Um, for example, in Arizona, there's a state law that says if you are arrested four times, or I'm sorry, you're convicted for uh, three times in a five-year period, your fourth arrest uh, for prostitution is a felony. There is no felony law like that for the buyers. That's a problem. Because um, I've had several buyers that have reoffended and that didn't recognize me because I wore a wig that day or changed up what I looked like. And I'm talking to the same dude I talked to a month ago um, <clears throat> and they go to jail and, and they spend, you know, a couple of days and they, and they get out. There is no stacking those charges on buyers and, and they're the ones creating the demand for this problem. So more stricter penalties on buyers. Um, however, there is, you know, people that are of the opinion that we should blast their picture out you know, on social media or put a or face on a billboard on the side of the freeway so everyone can see, you know, kind of shame them out of this behavior. The only problem with that is, is we take an oath to do no harm. And if we were to do that and their child at, you know, seventh and eighth grade gets bullied because dad's picture is on the side of the freeway, then we've caused harm. And so that's not a good idea either. Um, there's definitely more stricter punishments for buyers that is needed, in my opinion. As far as traffickers, traffickers are definitely <laughs> who the focus needs to be on. Um, you know, they're committing other crimes. Just like you said, they're a lot of times also dealing drugs. They're a lot of times also gangbangers. Um, and so 
Um, there are ways to get traffickers, certainly as an undercover. I love targeting traffickers and having them think that I am who, you know, they think is a new prostitute that they can exploit and let them exploit me instead of a live victim. And then I get to arrest them. So that's the best. Well, I want to kind of unpack some of the commonalities you see in each of those different groups. Before we do, school resource officer to undercover pseudo prostitute must be quite a, a jarring transition. So talk to me about how you as, you know, as a young woman still then were able to, to make that transition. And then what are the elements of fear and some of the other things that you dealt with early on? Um, definitely it was exciting. I don't think I was, um, afraid very much. I think I got a little afraid more towards the middle of my time. And and I spent, we're talking 13, almost 14 years as an undercover because I got comfortable. And that's where, (laughs) that's where it was. Oh, actually every John that comes up uh, or every buyer comes up to the hotel room is potentially violent. Even though I've had hundreds that weren't, I didn't even think anything of it and I got comfortable. Um, and that's when I had, you know, an incident with a naked guy jump on top of me. So <laughs> that's, you know, that's, that's where the fear came back or not came back, but came in, but all through up to that moment, um, you know, it was exciting every time it was fun every time. Um, and, and it was, you know, to the point where I was so good at it that I instructed on it. And that's, you know, also one of my favorite things to do is to inspire other officers to be the undercover and and try and do the same thing I was doing for sure. So obviously you're working alongside some of the other, you know, the women, the traffic women, the the prostitutes. Um, what what were the commonalities if if you were able to kind of speak to them in any sort of depth that you saw with them ending up in that position specifically? Um you know drugs is definitely a commonality um but not all the all the girls were on drugs um as an undercover and having traffickers trying to recruit me i've had traffickers you know that did not want me on drugs because they didn't want to compete with the drug to control me um but definitely drugs um a lot of it is you know girls that did enter in the life as teenagers and no one was there for them. There was no, you know, things in place. There was no victim advocates. There was nothing. And now here they are as adults still doing the same thing because that's all that they've known. And that's all that they've been told they're ever going to be um, able to do. So it's definitely um, that commonality for sure. It's just very transient. So it's hard to say because a lot of um, the people that I've dealt with are not from Arizona. They're from other states because they're constantly moving from state to state. So it's really difficult to to narrow down too much of a commonality because everyone's different coming from everywhere. Now, what about family dynamic? Um, I had a, a guest on the show, Tamia Naj, and she was actually trafficked out of Hungary into Canada. Um, she ended up becoming an um, incredible advocate writing a book. And I think even now she responds exactly like you said, when they, when they are able to rescue someone who's trafficked, she's the person who kind of guides them through that transition. Um, but in that particular example, she was going through, um, I think it was socialist hungry at that point. It was a very fragmented relationship as far as the family dynamic. And so she was very vulnerable and you could see it at that point. 
is there any sort of commonality as far as that family unit with these with these young girls you know feeling and or being vulnerable to being trafficked um i think uh definitely the element of no father in the home or someone incarcerated um or influence of you know older siblings that are unfortunately already in it that's a lot a lot of commonalities but i think there's also a unique commonality in traffickers i have arrested many traffickers mothers um and i have noticed that traffickers have an uncle or a father or an older brother that were a pimp and so then they became a pimp and it's familial that way with traffickers learning that behavior from their own family members um that's definitely something i don't think anyone's done a study on but it it's a huge thing I noticed over the years. And then again, I don't know if you were able to unpack this at all, but when it's in the family and that's your norm, whether it's you know the gangs, whether it's pimping, um, there's an obvious uh, um, element of this is my norm. I'm a child. I grew up in this. This is what you know, the world looks like. But of course, there was a first time, whether it was the, you know, the father or prior to that. Again, are there any commonalities between family dynamic? I mean, you already touched on one, but you know, socioeconomic status, uh, the element of drugs that is sending people not, not to be a prostitute specifically, but pimping and trafficking. Yeah, I definitely think for pimps, it's a they saw it while they were growing up. Their mom was a prostitute. Their dad was a pimp. And that's so unfortunate, too, because when we do um, these rescues and we have a child that's part of, you know, the hotel rescue and, and we have a child there, how much have they witnessed? What have they seen? What have they experienced? What have they been a part of, unfortunately, is is really, um, you know, there's there's some very concerning behavior there as far as what they they saw and um and experience so definitely that's that's um, something that i worry about now the third part of this triangle is obviously the the buyer the john so again are there any elements from their background because i mean you would argue that it's it's quite an unnatural thing even though they say it's the oldest profession to buy sex you know most people find themselves in some sort of relationship where that's you know a mutual consenting element so you know, what are some of the, the commonalities, if any, that you found the people actually soliciting sex in the first place? So buyers are a whole other dynamic. Um, unfortunately, I've seen thousands of men take their wedding ring off right in front of me, put it in the cup holder and then solicit me for sex. So unfortunately, the commonality there is that they're married. Um, the other unfortunate thing is that a lot of them are, you know, actual professionals, people that you wouldn't think would do that kind of thing at all. Um, and it's, you know, I don't know what causes them to do that, um, what sexual deviancy going on in their head that causes them to do that. But um, definitely that commonality I've seen. Because when you unpack the psychology of sex, there is a deregulation element to intercourse to orgasm and you you see a lot of it in our professions with some of the infidelity they simply you know uh, subconsciously i think seeking the need to downregulate. and i wonder if that's the element of these successful professionals i mean hugh grant was obviously a, a famous one married to a supermodel and you know soliciting in in california but you know I, again i i i wonder how much of even the purchaser side is coming from a mental ill health standpoint 
Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm not even sure, but definitely there's that element. And then there's that element of excitement that, um, you know, causes them to re-offend over and over and over again. And, you know, the hobbyists, the ones that, um, the sex buyers that do this all the time, they even take it to a whole nother level and they, you know, they, I've seen forums where they put out information about undercovers, what we look at, like what we, um, where we post, they'll tag our ads. Um, they will, you know, put out information to protect other buyers. So they have an opportunity to experience the same thing they've experienced. And it's, it's really incredible, um, that they have that whole dynamic going on where they try and, um, you know, make it a safe place for them to do that uh, behavior. Interesting. Well, I think one of the biggest things I got from Nick and Kara and um, Tamia was there's this facade that human traffickers show up in a, a white van, the di- you know, door slides open, two guys in ski masks get out, they throw someone in the back and then off they drive away. What I've, you know, personally learned from people like yourself over the years is the actual grooming the actual um you know transition from a child to a sex worker is usually a lot more cerebral and calculated than an acute event like that so if you wouldn't mind can educate us on the kind of spectrum of techniques that these pimps use to solicit these young women into sex work yeah the 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 fact that it's someone that the victim doesn't know is inaccurate. Um, and it, and it isn't even that the victim knows this person personally and intimately. And for a long period of time, what we're saying when we say they don't, they know them is uh, traffickers invest just like a predator would time in convincing a victim to leave and go with them. And that convincing is that grooming and recruitment where they're offering them gifts or offering them travel or trying to get them excited about all the things that are different from what they have going on at home. Um, and all of that influence can take place over, you know, depending on the victim and their vulnerability and what's going on at home, you know, it could be a couple of hours, it could be days and weeks. And that's, you know, where people can't fathom how that happens so quickly sometimes. But there are victims that, you know, get convinced and get exploited and groomed and recruited over the matter of a couple of hours. Um, It just depends on the, you know, ability of the trafficker to manipulate and express all the amazing things that they have to look forward to and how convincing they are. Um, Some of the things that they offer uh, are, you know, a ride, merely a ride to come get you or to take you home if they, you know, met you out away from home. And, you know, as the victim, you're thinking, oh, this is cool. I don't have to call an Uber or call my mom and dad to come get me. And and for the suspect, it is, yay, I get to gain information about where this person lives to use it later against them. Uh, part of that whole getting to know them is a lot of questions. They focus really heavily on that victim, almost overwhelmingly, where they're asking them everything about themselves. And it isn't questions like, what's your favorite color? What do you like to eat? It's you know, tell me about your parents. Where do they work? What kind of cars do they drive? Where do your kids go or your siblings go to school? How old are they? What do they look like? You know, all of that information gathering is intentional so that the trafficker can use it later when it moves into the relationship where they can now threaten them if they try to leave. Um, 
part of the isolation is, oh, you got a Facebook, let me get on your Facebook. And then, um, you know, if we're going to do this and be in a relationship, I got I got to know your password because I'm going to be able to trust you. And for whatever reason, victims, you know, hand over their information, hand over their password, hand over the code to their phone. Um, you know, all those things are so that the trafficker can control them. And then the whole getting them to leave with them is so huge because once they get them to leave with them, then they can take them to a place that's unfamiliar. Um, nobody remembers phone numbers anymore. So it's not like if they have their phone taken away from them, they're going to remember someone's phone number. If they're a young person, they don't have ID yet. They're not going to be able to leave, especially if they're, you know, driven to another state. And so all of that's intentional, just getting them to go with them so they can isolate them and further control them. Now, what about runaways and, and the homeless? Because one thing that was really interesting that Cara talked about was when you look at the homeless in, in a city, you don't normally see teens, not even children, but teens. And I was kind of, you know, taking a step back going, that's very, very true. And one of her things is, you know, young women especially, but you know, young boys too, they're so susceptible once they leave the home to, you know, a predator by that point that sadly the reason we don't see a lot of them is they've already been, you know, taken by someone under someone's proverbial wing. Yeah, so um, definitely I think I've seen a stat one in three kids in the first 48 hours will be introduced into the life of trafficking, uh, being out on the run um, runaway status or out on the streets. A lot of that has to do with where they end up when they run away. Um, cause there are known areas for prostitution, um, tracks or blades where, where pimps hang out. Um, but a lot of times it's, you know, them talking about it in advance of running away on social media and traffickers find that. I don't know if they do searches for the hashtag runaway or what, what it is, but they, they definitely are able to figure out what kids are on the verge of wanting to leave home and, and, you know, push them over the edge and get them to go. When you talked about social media, I think a lot of people listening now, you realize that it's not, like I said, that white van snatching up your child, even though that's always a danger as well. Um, talk to me about the vulnerability of these young boys and girls on social media and what we can maybe look out for as parents. Yeah, so there is um, there's apps on the phone, if you're familiar with Bark Technologies at all that, you know, they do a really good job of identifying apps on the phone that <clears throat> make it look like a calculator or make it look like another app that a parent wouldn't think is a disguise for an actual chatting app or other apps where they can build a profile and converse with strangers. And so it isn't even just known apps like Facebook and Instagram anymore, is my point, is that there is, you know, companies and apps out there that actually have the intent of, hiding information from parents and keeping secrets. Um, so definitely the internet facilitates a whole bunch of this. Um, anywhere where there's private messages or, um, you know, the ability to message back and forth, whether it's a computer game even, or apps on the phone, actual social media apps, that that is where the concern is. And parents need to, uh, you know, really invest in having this be a learned behavior. These are the rules with the phone. These are the rules with the computer and check into those things. You establish the rules, you need to check up on them. Um, I definitely, uh, this is a funny story for what I was in um, middle school. My dad let me go over to my friend's house and I was supposed to be at her house 
Well, my friend and I wanted to start our own babysitting business. So we made these flyers and we left her house and we were flyering the neighborhood. Well, random, my dad pulls up on us like five blocks away from her house. Uh, I don't know if he drove down every street looking for me, but I was not where I said I was. And I lied to him. And that's what parents need to do. They need to check. I got caught. They need to catch or check up on, you know, these established rules. Um, There's a lot of rules that go by the wayside. Yes, parents do a good job establishing, but they don't check. And unfortunately, we all try and pull one over on our parents at at some point in our lives. Well, I'd never heard of bark technology before, so I've learned something new. So thank you. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, there's that and Gab Wireless and they have, you know, really, they have like phones that they create that have limited ability or if someone tries to message their child, it indicates to the parents on their phone through a text, hey, someone's reaching out to your kid. I mean, really good stuff. So there's, there's, you know, really good movements towards helping parents do all of this monitoring. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. Uh I think one of the least understood elements of this whole conversation is what are those invisible handcuffs that are holding these young women or men, you know, under under this imprisonment, basically. With Tamia, there was a, a more obvious journey. She was from Hungary. When she got there, they basically held her passport, created the story of how she owed all this money. And then, you know, it was just that kind of spiral from there. They introduced drugs and it was just, you know, a, a vicious circle from that point. Um, you talked about this trust built with this person prior now they physically pick them up in the car whatever it is what does that next element look like that keeps them working the streets under this person so besides the element of and that's part of it where they create a situation where the victim feels they owe their trafficker money or they owe them you know i'm only i I owe them a month of doing this or whatever it is but a month is never really a month because something else happens and then they owe them more um part of the whole situation really is that traffickers are the most reliable people you'll ever meet if they say they're going to beat you up they're going to beat you up if they say they're going to take you by your parents house and they may or may not shoot it up depending on your attitude that time at that time they're going to get you in the car they're going to point a gun at your parents house because if you don't believe those threats are real, they're they're not going to stay with you. But these victims believe those threats are real because traffickers have made the scenario and the situation such that they know if I don't behave, I'm going to get beat up. Or if I don't do this, this will be taken away. Um, all of those things are very real to victims, and that's how they keep them. I'd say one of the saddest events in my career and it was almost partly because our reaction to it um it was i think it was the very end of a shift and i was there with a a medic crew and uh, a young woman had been found dead in the dumpster and it was our red light district in orlando and you know one of my medic partners went and confirmed the death and then she came back and i kind of took a step back do you realize that we literally aren't even a affected by this anymore this is such a frequent event that no one's even noticed that that's a human being that's that's lying there in that you know receptacle now um when i hear some of these conversations there are some horrendous endings to some of these you know young women's lives so you know you've got these people there they're sex workers what is the other, you know, dark side? I mean, the the best side is that they meet someone like you, they're liberated, and then, you know, hopefully transplanted somewhere safe and get to try and begin to process their trauma. But talk to me about the dark side, you know, when they're not 
doing what they were told to do or if they find themselves too deep in addiction? Yeah, it's it's definitely <laughs> there's a lot more dark side than there is light. Um, I've had so many cases where I've tried to help victims and they fall back into drugs or they fall back into a situation with another trafficker and then they're gone and I can't get to them. I can't help them anymore. And they've taken off to another state and they're gone. Um, <clears throat> as you were talking about, you know, asking me that question, I was thinking about uh, one case in particular. It was the biggest case in my career. It took five years it was seven victims, two juveniles. It was familial trafficking. So it was the uncle pimping out his niece, who was 13 when he first offended on her, 16 when she finally told law enforcement. So several years. And then his stepdaughter, who was 17. Um, <clears throat> that whole case um, basically went on for five years because the trial was delayed and delayed and delayed. And in that time, keeping these victims on board and still willing to testify after being told it's continued or after being told, Hey, the hearing is Friday, be there at 10 AM. They show up. Oh yeah. It's been continued or not showing up to court at all. And then the defense thinking, Oh yay, we're, we're making headway here with all these delays, the victims falling back into drugs and, and they really had. And all of, all of that process, the justice system process to get to the point where we went to trial and spending seven months in trial with this victim that was 16 when she called the police and I met her when she was 16 and she's 20 something testifying. Um, in that moment of hanging out with her for that period of time when she was testifying for about a month because she testified for 18 days, I literally didn't see any progression in her mentally. She was still 16 in her head. She was dependent completely on others. She didn't know how to drive. She couldn't hold down a job. That's definitely the dark side that I've seen with the mental illness. I'm not mental illness, but the mental like stoppage at the point where they were victimized and, and maybe rescued, but they didn't move forward or haven't moved on or gotten over what happened to them or any of those things. So that's, that's definitely something she's struggled with even now. And I've had communication with her and you know, she still doesn't have a job and doesn't know how to drive and she's 30 something now. So it, it's, it's very sad. So with that, as I said, some of these conversations, I flash back to my career and there's one specific one I can think of. It was a room full of uh, sex workers. And the one that I actually transported was close to death. And ironically, one of her medical conditions kept her alive through her opioid overdose. So it was this very, you know, bizarre medical moment and she survived, which was great. But when I look back now, there was a man in the room, there was, I think, three or four women in the room. And I'm like, fuck, I wish I'd you know, done more than just transported them. Um, with that being said, there are so many of us that respond to so many calls in, in police and fire and EMS and dispatch even. What are, what are some of the red flags that the average responder maybe isn't aware of that we can actually take a step back and do that extra assessment more on some of these scenes? Yeah, and that's just it. Patrol and, and first responders Back in 1998, when I was in the academy, we didn't have a sex trafficking class. Have you had a sex trafficking class? No, and I like, worked for 14 years. Yeah. 
Um, those are things that we're doing now, but you have generations of officers and first responders out there that have not had any training. They don't know what to look for. Um, so definitely training <laughs> is, is the first step. Um, and that's been implemented over the last six years, at least at my agency. And I helped create the training, um, and taught it. And in that training scenarios, or at least a video scenario of different types of contacts you'll have with the public, um, a domestic violence call. And a lot of trafficking is domestic violence. So even if you have a victim that's uncooperative and doesn't want to say, hey, I'm being prostituted by this person, you have a domestic violence. You can make an arrest that way or looking outside of the box with other things. But um, even a loud noise complaint at a hotel, looking around the hotel room, you're already doing a protective sweep for anybody hanging out in the bathtub, officer safety-wise, while you're walking through that hotel room, you make observations of condoms on the table. You make observations of a computer open with, um, you know, to an internet escort ad site with provocatively dressed women and ads. Um, you see all these, you know, boxes of McDonald's and Jack in the Box and Burger King wrappers. And, you know, looks like they've been staying there a long time. Um, lots of towels, condom wrappers open, all those kind of things. Those kind of observations that, you know, the dispatcher told you it was a loud noise complaint. You show up, you identify people, you tell them to turn it down and leave normally. But if you look and see some of the indicators of, of just the things laying around, um, you can you can make that call turn into what it is. And, and it could be potentially a rescue of, you know, some juveniles even or uh, adults and, and arrest of a trafficker. So and then what about? Physically, thank you. And, and a very, what about from a physical perspective, whether it's us, the paramedics doing an exam in the back of the rescue or whether it's the doctors and nurses in, in the hospital? What are some of the telltale signs as far as, you know, nutrition, bruising, et cetera? Yeah. So when I'm talking about the Burger King and the, and the McDonald's and the pizza boxes, all of that is, you know, signs of malnourishment. There isn't any, like, <laughs> any good food. Um, a lot of times victims only get one meal a day because they're not allowed to use the money that they're making for their trafficker to even eat, or they're not allowed to stop until they make a certain amount of money before they can go back to the hotel and eat. And they have to ask permission about what they're allowed to eat. Um, malnourishment's a big one, cigarette burns, any sign of injury. Um, if you've heard of branding, Branding is basically where a trafficker will put their moniker or their symbol or their name on their victims. So if you see multiple individuals with the same tattoo or a very similar tattoo, it could be a huge red flag that that's possibly a trafficking situation because you've got all these girls with the same tattoo um, in one contact. Uh, so that's definitely huge. Yeah. Well, again, thank you. I mean, I wish I'd known this, you know, what would be now 18, 19 years ago. You know, it's, 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 it's heartbreaking when you look back and realize that you miss some of these things, you know, especially if that potentially might have saved a life. I mean, we saved her life medically, but what did she go back to the next day? Yeah, for sure. Now, what about from the teacher and SRO setting? Now we're in 2023. Hopefully, we've got some better educated officers standing guard in our schools. And then you've got counselors and you've got teachers. And I know, sadly, you know, when the pandemic hit, I heard that there was a, an increase, um, sorry, a decrease in the reporting of abuse because the teachers often, often were the ones that actually saw what was going on with some of these children. So we've got the first responders eyes. What about within the school itself? 
Yeah. And definitely I have done specific training for school resource officers about sex trafficking, as well as school administrators, staff, school security, counselor, nurse, um, anyone who wanted to attend as far as direct training where a school district has contacted me and I've come and done a, a training on kind of the, some of the things that we're, we're talking about here for sure. And and I like to show a case study example so they can see, you know, this is the, you know, what happened to this particular victim and the outcome. So then that they know, okay, this is what to look for. This is what happened with that kid. And this is, you know, what the bad guy gets, which is the happy ending. <laughs> well, as we touched on a little bit earlier, one of the kind of aha moments that I had, I was, I guess, in one way, very fortunate that my family, who's from England, moved to Portugal about 20 years ago. And I started this podcast six and a half years ago. And, and early on, my mom said, hey, did you know that they decriminalized addiction in Portugal? And it's been a huge success. So as I you know, learned more about it, and I en ended up actually sitting in Lisbon with the man who spearheaded this for that country. Um it was amazing because all they did, I mean, people think about that. They're like, oh, so now you can buy crack in the supermarket? No, that's not what it is. You just take someone who's an addict, so not selling, not smuggling, not all the crimes that go with it, but an addict. And rather than arrest them, you introduce them. You don't even force them. You introduce them to this gamut of uh, of counseling, addiction therapy, job creation that they've they've created. And what they saw, long story short, was a lot of these people who were desperate that were in fear of being arrested, which I'm sure, you know, is the same for a lot of the sex workers. Now that that absence of arrest for a personal use addiction or, you know, um, stop, they now will go, okay, well, now I can find help and I'm not going to be arrested for it. And then without that criminal record, now I can actually sustain employment and then get on the, on track again. James Gear, in my personal opinion, with what I've seen with my own eyes in the East Coast and the West Coast where I've worked, is that the war on drugs has been an epic failure and it's created so much crime on our streets, whether it's the gangs, whether it's the prostitution. Um, but this is a very hard thing to ask someone in law enforcement who's been asked to enforce these very laws their whole career. So what is your perspective of, again, not, not, not uh, excuse me, smugglers and, and sellers, but not arresting addicts, but actually putting that power back in the medical community's hands to allow them to to overcome the trauma that sent them into addiction in the first place. As far as addicts and drugs, Ad, yeah, addicts specifically. So you know, the smuggling, the, the the pimping, all these things are crimes. And these people, that's the beautiful thing about this. When you stop diluting law enforcement time with chasing you know, addicts and, 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 and the people that are really just trying to fill that void in their life. Now you have all these resources to address the nucleus, the smuggler, the pimp, et cetera. So, um, it's a hard thing to ask people in law enforcement. What is your, your stance on, on changing the prohibition of drugs when it comes to addiction specifically? I think as long as we're helping someone, um, help themselves instead of just like a, a, sui a suicide call, I'm not going to let you kill yourself. Right. Um, that's kind of my thought process on someone who's an addict. We're not going to let you kill yourself. So as long as those, uh, you know, counseling and services and those things that are implemented are in place to actually help them not hurt themselves anymore, then that sounds wonderful. But if it isn't working that way, then there's got to be other things that happen. No, absolutely. And I think that's what they did so well. They, they, 
front-loaded all those resources, you know, before they enacted this law. So they were all there ready for it. Um, you know, and with, with suicide, with addiction, with prostitution, I mean, this is a, a mental health crisis that we have. Yeah, and I thought you were going to ask me about decriminalization of prostitution. Um, that's a whole other ballgame because, you know, there is this conception that all of Nevada is legalized prostitution. It isn't all of Nevada. It is a certain county. And in that county is where they have the bunny ranch and, and that kind of thing going on. But I have been there. I happened to sneak in there when I was at a conference, a law enforcement conference, and myself and two other guys went there. And I took a tour of it. And I saw it and I, you know, experienced, you know, seeing the girls hanging out there waiting for their, their date or for the person to purchase them. But we don't know that those girls are there voluntarily. We don't know that if um, they're being forced to go prostitute outside of there on the hours that they're not there, we don't know there's a lot of unknowns. And so I don't, I don't know that that's exactly the answer for that criminal behavior if it's working for the for the actual addicts, then that's great. But I think there's definitely got to be more thought process going on with decriminalization of, of prostitution. So to add to that whole kind of um, algebraic equation, if we made a positive dent in the world of addiction, would that in turn make a positive dent in the world of prostitution? I mean, possibly. Um, there's definitely cases that I've had where I've had a social media search warrant and scene where a trafficker literally controlled these girls. Daddy, can I have a pill? Do this date first. And then they got their pill. Um, but then I've also seen cases where they weren't using drugs at all and they were still, um, you know, controlled by the trafficker. So there's there's both going on. So I don't know. I don't know that we could say yet. Yeah, I think that's the thing with these conversations, though, is that there's always going to be those outliers. But if a change can affect 50% of it, then why not? Yeah. Yeah, we got to be able to do something. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let me ask you this. I mean, is the way that we're doing it, is it working? Are we seeing a reduction in prostitution and, and predatory actions and trafficking at the moment? I don't think so. I think that, and I've been out of it for a year. So if I'm misspeaking, it's because I've not been in it for a year. But um, as far as enforcement, um, I, I don't know that we're making strides. I think we're doing the right things with involving survivor victim advocates, like you said. Um, that's huge. We weren't doing that before. And, you know, asking that question and actually offering services and actually helping people. I think that has to, you know, take its course and, and be in effect for a period of time for us to evaluate and see if that's working or, or making an impact. Well, speaking of that as well, I think, again, you know, if, if this was a Hollywood film, the, she would be rescued at the end and then the music would hit and everything's, you know, fantastic. The reality is you've got someone who's been through an incredible traumatic event. You talked about one incidence of the 16-year-old. Um, you know, what is the ripple effect of being trafficked on a young man or a young woman's life moving forward? And, and, and how, how do we help them mentally and physically after they're liberated? Yeah, and that's that's definitely hard because like that case that I was talking about that went to trial and that 16-year-old that's stuck at 16, even though she's in her 30s now. Um, and I'm, I'm making generalizations. Just my mirror hanging out with her during the trial for a month, that's my assumption of what's going on with her. 
I know that she didn't get any services back when she was a juvenile because it was a situation where her grandmother um, lived, uh, you know, two hours away from where we had the services at that time available for her. And, and she didn't want to um, have her go. Um, so she she literally said no. <laughs> uh, so that might also be part of why she's stuck mentally at 16, but certainly getting services immediately. And that's something that we're definitely doing now. Um, especially with juveniles, it is a protocol. It is a agreement between the police department. If they're in child welfare, so child welfare, the insurance company, the people who pay the bill um, for kids in child welfare, a mental health hospital. And so when we do a rescue now of a juvenile, the protocol gets enacted and we take them to that mental health hospital, we being the law enforcement entity, because we do the safe transportation, they can't get away from us, to the hotel, the hospital. They stay there for 23 hours. So the um, the child welfare entity basically signs a temporary custody notice to the hospital of that kid. They get a doctor, they get counseling, they get a shower, they get to brush their teeth, they get, you know, rest. Um, if they're on drugs, they can stay there for a longer period of time till they get off and they have full services there, but it is a lockdown. They're not able to leave, which unfortunately is, is something that has to take place for these kids to actually recover. And then the child welfare is finding appropriate placement for them after they get released from this hospital. 23 hours later, we come back in two o'clock in the morning, whatever time, we're that safe transport again to that safe placement. And that placement is specific to child sex trafficking victims where they get actual therapy, survivor victim advocate assistance, all of those things. So those are all things that really are intense and, um, you know, intentional with getting victims actual help. Now, you talked about the familial element to some of this trafficking one of the real you know i guess elephants in the room i had no idea until i started doing this this the show is how many people in this case usually in uniform had pretty significant trauma a lot of times it was sexual abuse when they were children when you entered this kind of field you know were was there an element of of being struck by the magnitude of how many people were actually abused in the home or was that not the case in your career no, definitely, definitely shocking. Um, and it's, it's, it's really crazy because, um, you know, definitely I have had law enforcement friends that, you know, are my peers and I never knew that about them, that they actually had that going on in their childhood, but absolutely it's, it's, um, there's a, a bigger problem here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to, there's a couple of things I want to throw at you before we do some closing questions. Um, the first one is Jason Schechterly. So he was on the show, Phoenix police officer, was was hit at almost 100 miles an hour by a taxi while he was at a red light, horrendously burnt, and is just, you know, one of the most incredible warriors I have the honor to know. You talked when we were on the phone the other day that that was right at the beginning of your career. So just, you know, what was that event seen through the eyes of everyone else in the department? Um, I, I can't remember if I was on that night. I don't think I was. But definitely, I worked that area um, when I was a cadet. And so where that happened to him at, I was very familiar with where that was. And it's just absolutely crazy. He's amazing that he survived that. 
Absolutely. Phenomenal human being. Well, one more area when it comes to complacency in our profession, you talked about being under a naked man. So if you yeah. wouldn't mind, kind of walk me through that moment. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important because I, I was on 14 years and, and you do, you lose that adrenaline, you, you get comfortable. Most scenes you've seen a thousand times before and then something different happens and it can catch you on your back foot. So, you know, what, what were the events of that day and then what changed in you? You know, what did you do with that fear after that real wake-up call that snapped you back from complacency? Yeah, it was ironic too because right before that happened, um, actually maybe it was right after that, after that, I was at a conference and a female officer at the table from a different state was giving us a story about what happened to her. And she had opened the door in the hotel room to a buyer just like we have thousands of times. And he came in and he punched her in the face and knocked her out in this hallway area of the hotel um, from the door, bathroom, little bit of a hallway, and then it opens up into the room. And that's where the camera was for her team. And she talked about how they didn't realize right away what had happened. And it's one of those things where after we talked about that, to our own squad and our bosses, we actually did a scenario like, without telling our arrest guys about that story, like, hey, this could have happened. How long do you give where you don't hear anything before you make the decision to come in? Um, but <clears throat> anyway, the incident with the naked guy, it was just one of those where I was, you know, as normal, bringing them into the room and and I got too comfortable. I laid down on the bed and I was kind of talking to him and um, and, you know, he was doing the whisper and motions with his mouth, trying to describe the sex act he wanted and he wasn't talking. And that was a little um, different, you know, I've had it before, but I hadn't had it in a long time. And um, I thought he was just leaning in, you know, cause he was undressing and talking to me at the same time, but I thought he was just leaning in to, you know, whisper closer to me cause I couldn't hear him. And instead he jumped on top of me. So that was definitely scary for me. Cause that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> And I got too comfortable and I, I definitely no longer laid across the bed like that anymore. Um, but it's a fine line of, you know, hinking them up if you're too, you know, staying away from them. Like I, when I teach about being an undercover, I talk about, I give them a hug. I give them a hug because if I don't have any contact with them, they're immediately, we're going to play this game. Well, are you the police? Prove you're not the police. Um, and we're not going to go there. So, um, it is one of those things, but um, that was definitely um, a moment where I changed the way I was doing business for sure. And was it the team seeing that particular event that that helped you in that moment? Um, no, no, it was just my own decision to to you know not get so comfortable. Um, I had been doing it you know for five or six years at that point, and you know when it's so often every you know week we uh, would do operations like that either in the hotel room or on the streets, you know, getting back into remembering the basics. Beautiful. Well, one, a couple other things that just popped in my head when we were talking. Firstly, um, another uh, thing that I think a lot of people are ignorant to is the impact of a large event, the Olympics, the Super Bowl, et cetera, and trafficking and prostitution in that area. So talk to me about that. Again, you are an agency and you have one of these events happen in your town. What should they be looking for? Yeah, so I worked the last two Super Bowls that came to Arizona prior to this most recent one. 
And uh, there's definitely an increase. Um, it is what it is. It is not just Super Bowl. It is any major event. I've done search warrants on suspects' computers where they've searched military bases. They've searched Intel conferences or Google conferences, places where there might be a lot, a lot of men, golf co- competitions. Um, so for investigators, we expect the increase. I think what we are doing correct in Arizona is we're not just involving the major police department. We are involving all the other agencies. We are all very close. We all actually have personal phone numbers to, you know, other cities that surround Phoenix. And, you know, we can call on them at any time of day or night and working together, doing operations together creates that not here. You're not going to do this here, which is what bad guys need to understand. We're not going to allow this here. Um, Before that, we were just pushing it out of Phoenix to Mesa or to Scottsdale or somewhere else. Um, And that's not the way to work. And what about porn? Obviously, now you have not only porn, but you have OnlyFans and some of these other things that I'm assuming can be abused in the other way as well. But it's a virtual element. So how much of that industry are you seeing trafficking actually being behind? 100%. Yeah. And even that case that I was talking about that took five years, that involved an element of porn. Um, It was where that 16-year-old was going to be going to California and she had to... basically passed the STD tests and she didn't pass. And so her uncle said, that's okay. We'll get your younger sister. And her younger sister at that time on that day was 13 when she was 16. And that's the same age she was when he first offended on her. And so that, that has definitely been all throughout right before I left OnlyFans was picking up, you know, steam. It was in the beginning stages about a year and a half, two years ago. And so um, I know that OnlyFans is absolutely contributing uh, to this issue, and there is hopefully work being done to do something about OnlyFans because that's that's a whole other issue. I mean, if we've got you know people posting on social media that eighteen year olds are wanting to grow up and be an OnlyFans girl, that that's that's not good. <laughs> not good at all. Well, I mean, we've been all over the place. I know you have some great resources for people listening. So tell me about the classes that you offer and where can they find them? Yeah, so I have two goals in my since I retired and, and started my own consulting business. In addition to working for a law enforcement agency, um, I've started doing consulting. I have um, opportunities to train law enforcement how to do the undercover operations Um, to target sex buyers and target traffickers, both online or in person. And it's, you know, a a certain finesse to the conversation to get the elements of the crime and and be safe as as an undercover. And so I really have had a great opportunity to train a couple of agencies. Um, I can do it virtually or in person. Um, And then also consult them through their undercover operation if things come up, if, you know, let's say a famous person shows up and what to do with all of that. And and all those things. But on the other side of that, I also have created a course on my website, a chance for awareness, pun intended, um, a chance for awareness.com. And the course is, you know, my speaking through this problem, it talks about what sex trafficking is versus human trafficking versus human smuggling, all those things get intermixed and, and confused. I talk about this evolution of law enforcement and my own evolution as a, a young officer. 
And then I talk about victim vulnerabilities and what victims go through. I talk about some of my cases. I talk about sex buyers um, and and all about sex buyers and what causes how they're causing the demand for this problem. And then I talk about traffickers, traffickers as far as how we target them, how they target victims, um, some case studies with that. And then what people can do to actually help the problem. And that's that's kind of how I close this course. Um, as far as resources, I also have um, downloadable, printable tip sheets for parents and teens. As far as some of the things that we talk about, red flags and, and things to talk to your teen about. And then I have a downloadable about sex trafficking indicators, um, like like we've discussed with the branding, the tattooing, those kind of things. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. Like I said, it's, it's all information I wish I'd known a long, long time ago. So I hope from here on in, you know, our responders are looking with a different kind of lens now. Yeah. And then um, obviously we met, I think, on LinkedIn. So I'm on LinkedIn and then everybody needs to be on LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. Um, and then I'm on Instagram under a chance for awareness, but it's a underscore chance underscore four underscore awareness. Um but definitely, uh, the more resources, the more you know, um, the better off we're all going to be in prevention, at least. Absolutely. Well, I'd love to just throw a few closing questions at you. Um, the okay. first, first one I'd love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Um, so I don't know that I want to promote <laughs> this book, but... There's a book by Pimping Ken. Um, I forget the title of it, but if you looked up Pimping Ken, if you wanted to understand the dynamics of grooming and recruitment and and what what traffickers think, um, that is definitely a book that I would I would read. Um, and then there's uh, obviously there's books from survivors, and I would read their stories, like Rebecca Bender, and um, I just met Lena Sabula, um, her story. <clears throat> I, I would read stories from survivors as well. Brilliant. What about a movie and or a documentary that you love? Um, well, I love the one that I'm in. <laughs> Which is? <laughs> um, Frontline PBS did our, a documentary. They followed our unit for three years. And um, it's a really good depiction of some of these undercover operations that I'm talking about. And it also follows the story of a rescue of a juvenile through to the point where her three traffickers took pleas. Um, but, but it's called sex trafficking in America. And it's, it's a really good example of what's going on in America, at least uh, with trafficking. Brilliant. All right. Well, speaking of amazing people, are there any, excuse me, is there anyone that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Uh, yeah, if you haven't already had Rebecca Bender, I would definitely reach out. She's um, an amazing survivor. Um, let's see here. Uh, Lena Sabula, I don't know if you've ever heard of her. She Her trafficking is international. So it gives a different perspective, especially for me being in the United States only and, and hearing an actual international trafficking story. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, well, I'll definitely try and connect with both of them if, if you can be able to help in any way. All right. And then the uh, the last question, because you already told us where to find you, what do you do to decompress? Um, 
Well, um, I definitely like interior decorating. <laughs> I'm shopping. Um, you know, uh, we all have our favorite TV shows on, on TV and um, being with family, all of those things. Um, definitely when I was doing the, the work, my my greatest decompression was hearing a person being sentenced to hundreds of years, like that case that I've been talking about, that trafficker, that uncle who, who trafficked his niece and stepdaughter and five other adult females. He was sentenced to 493.5 years. I wonder where the 0.5 came from. Yeah, I don't know, but <laughs> it doesn't matter to me as long as he never sees the day of sunlight. Um, yeah, so that's definitely huge as far as whew, it's over uh, moment, but it's not over for those victims. So um, definitely um, it, it's still a, a battle for them. And then just on that topic, whether it's uh, a first responder and just a regular, you know, regular element of their profession, whether it's a counselor, there is an element of of absorbing trauma as we progress through our careers. It seems like you would have an even closer relationship in some elements to, you know, again, being that what they call it, a secondhand PTSD almost. So how were you able to identify within yourself that it was time to kind of take a little bit more space and then what did you do progressively because i mean those wins i'm sure only came once in a while in the court yeah yeah definitely um i i don't know that we had time to move on from one to i'm sorry from one to the next um i have had situations where i've had you know five or six cases all in different stages of going to trial working it, investigating, then here comes another one. Um, and so unfortunately, most of that 13 years, there was about less than 10 detectives for the whole city, fifth largest city in the United States. And so we were working like moving around with like our head chickens with their heads cut off or whatever the expression expression is. But we were, um, we didn't have really times to decompress. Um, so the only decompression I got was I put one in prison onto the next one and made it a goal and made it um, my next, you know, however months long goal. And then you, as you transition out, even though you went into a different law enforcement agency, was there an element then of finally be able to kind of decompress and almost assess some of the things that you've seen in the last 13 years? Yeah, especially now that I'm doing this business and I'm recalling all the details of all the stories that I have and, and want to share. And so that's, that's what's decompressing for me is, is, is the sharing of um, my experiences and the, and the stories of the cases that I've investigated and, and the successes that I've had. So that that's where it is for me. Brilliant. Well, Heidi, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation. Like I said, I've had um, you know, people from Deliver Fund. I've had someone who trafficked from Hungary, but this is a very unique perspective that you bring. Actually, being undercover in that role and and rest, arresting from the inside out. So, I want to thank you so much for you know some of the stories you told today and being so generous with your time. Absolutely, thank you so much.